This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Look, we all know from experience, compliance sucks. But what if I told you that there is a better way? Our good friends at ByteCheck developed the first ever managed service for SOC 2. Leverage the innovative ByteCheck platform and a combined experience of over 30 years from the ByteCheck team to complete your SOC 2 examination faster without the headache. The ByteCheck team works as an extension of your team to prepare evidence, draft SOC 2 report sections, and provide all the necessary artifacts to your team to then provide to auditors. Reach out to the ByteCheck team by dropping down into the show notes and visiting ByteCheck.com. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. In this episode, we brought back fan favorite John Strand. People loved his episode on Hacker Valley Blue Season 2. And in this episode, we get more into his background. Such an interesting character in cybersecurity with tons of stories to share. Without further ado, let's jump right to this exciting episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. And I'm excited for this episode because I'm a fan of quality content. And our guest today has a resume that exudes quality content. He's even been on Hacker Valley Blue. Our guest this episode is John Strand, owner of Black Hills Information Security, also a SANS instructor and a mentor to many in the industry. John, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate it. Absolutely, John. Can't wait to get into this conversation. This is something I've been looking forward to for a minute. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. I got started in computer security while I was working at Accenture Consulting in the Department of Interior in the world's largest class action lawsuit. If you want to Google it, it's Cobell versus the Department of Interior. It was monstrous. It had to do misappropriation of Native American funds. But the judge in that case, one of the original judge, Judge Lamperth, shut the entire Department of Interior down because the networks were insecure. I was right in the middle of that and uh, worked with the tech teams to try to secure those systems as much as we could in the time that was allotted, uh, get checks going again. Then I moved to Northrop Grumman, did classified stuff, which sounds way cooler than it actually was. <laughs> the aliens and top secret time travel. And really, it's just like some of the most boring stuff you've ever seen. Did that for a number of years. Started teaching with the Sands Institute. And about that same time, started Black Hills Information Security around 2007, 2008. And just been growing that company since then. So that's kind of the very, very, very short abbreviated version of me and security. So we talked quite a bit at in Know Thyself, the Hacker Valley Blue season, but I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into your earlier life. What is your personal superpower, personal or professional superpower? And when would you say that power really came about in your life? I would say that my power is the ability to be comfortable with failure. I think that that always has been a superpower of mine where I fail at something and then I do it again, and then I fail at something and then I do it again, and then I fail at something and I do it again. And it's weird, you know, you talk about that being a superpower, but 
I, I, you know, this is going to sound horrible and I know it's going to be controversial, but, but I hate movies like Kung Fu Panda. I, I really do. And I, I, I know, I know people are like, oh my gosh. Uh, or was it the other animated one I watched with my kids? Mulan. I hate that movie, the animated one. And the reason why I hate these movies is in, in like Kung Fu Panda and these, it's just this, this, this character is just good, right? They wake up one morning and all of a sudden they know Kung Fu. And it's like, it doesn't cover the struggles, the failures, the hardships that people go through to actually get to the point of being good. And you have a ton of people in the industry that are like, oh my God, I could never be like a SANS instructor. I could never be like Dave Kennedy. And what they don't understand is that just this amazing, like huge reservoir of failures that you go through again and again and again and again for the purposes of just trying to get something like your stupid wireless card to work on Slackware back eight years ago, right? So that that ability to be comfortable with that failure, I knew from a young age that I wasn't the best at sports. I knew from a young age I absolutely was not the best academically because people would get things faster than me. And in some way, I was actually okay with that. And I was, I was willing and able just to go in and fail, 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 fail. And then at some point, you start to get good. And uh, that's kind of one of the messages I like to get to people. You really do get to know yourself when you're a failure. You really do get to know yourself whenever you're honest about what it is that you have for limitations. And I think that we all need to be a little bit more comfortable with our inner failure. I couldn't agree more with that. But I'd love to hear a story about that going through failure. When would you say is that earliest recollection of you having that superpower of like going through the grind and achieving what you want? So oddly enough, it was uh, riding a bike. We all learn how to ride bikes. And I noticed that like all my friends learned, you know, they were faster at it than I was. Right. And uh, kind of going out with my mom and dad and pushing me and pushing me and falling and falling and falling and falling and falling and getting cut up. But you just keep getting back up. So, you know, and I remember when I was younger thinking I was stupid. You know, I went to Catholic high school and a lot of the kids were much, much more advanced than I was. And kind of that same thing where you wouldn't get something like spelling. I was horrible. I still suck at spelling. I'm so bad at spelling, (laughs) as a matter of fact, that whenever I'm spelling, and this is not a joke, this has happened. I've been in Google, like Google Mail, and typing things up. And Google's like, oh, you're trying to type in French. I'm going to change your entire language to French. Get out of here. (laughs) And it's just like, oh, my God. You know, kind of dealing with that as a kid growing up. Um, but you always had like that, that goal, right? So if you're looking at computers, uh, I had this Christmas where my dad got me a computer and it was like an old, old, old IBM, like AT or XT, really, really slow computer back then. I mean, my God, this was the ticket, right? And it didn't have a video card and it didn't have a hard drive. There was like a printer that came with it. So it wasn't like a complete thing. And I remember being so pissed off at my dad for getting me a broken computer, but to get that damn thing to work, I had to, you know, deliver newspapers. I had to mow lawns, got the video card in, and it was this old CGA video card, and then got a hard drive. I think it was like a 10 meg hard drive at the time, and I learned how to put that stuff together. So it's like failing, but always failing having a goal in mind has always been one of those things. So you could be like from riding a bike to, to you know, not doing as well at spelling in school to trying to get a computer working, you know, I, I think I'm trying to get people across it. I'm actually an idiot. It's just I've failed way more than most people. And at some point, those those scars make you wise. 
I think failure can sometimes be synonymous to learning because when you fail, it may seem like things didn't go your way, but it's actually a success because you're learning something new. And I'm sure being an instructor for SANS, like you've learned countless times on the job by teaching other people, teaching people, seeing their reactions, hearing their questions, and then you revise your next time around. And you're also an owner, right? You own your own company. I'm sure this has brought many quote unquote failures or learning opportunities. What's one that really stands out to you after forming your company? Partnerships, mm. even partnerships with friends. Um, and this, this, is, this has happened like multiple times, right? I, I'm not going to name names, but I can literally go through tons of people that I know that start a company and they're like, well, me and a buddy are going to work together or me and a brother-in-law are going to work together or I'm going to work with a family member. And anytime I'm talking to somebody about this, it's like, just don't. And there's always a certain level of disagreement that exists in any type of relationship from a marriage to owning a company. You're always going to have that, but inevitably you're going to end up with a kind of an unequal work balance or perceived unequal work balance at some point. You're going to end up with a very differing groups of opinions on how to proceed with that company. The hard thing about that is, you know, I've, I've started a company with like two of my best friends and it dissolved. Now, thankfully, I'm still friends with those people, but it was years before we actually got to the level where we were comfortable with each other to call each other friends again. If there's anything that I tell people, if you're looking to start a business and it's short of starting a business with like a spouse or somebody that you have no choice but to work with that person, I say, don't, don't do it. Um, and every time I have this conversation, every single time they're like, no, 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 it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then six, seven months or a couple of years later, like, okay, that sucked. That didn't work. Um, I don't know why that's the case. You know, if I look at my relationships and partnerships that did work, usually like I'm a, I'm a partner with Chris Brenton, who's a also a retired SANS instructor, and he's partners with me in active countermeasures. So we, we do products there and that works because we both know each other's work ethic. We both worked together at the Sands Institute for a decade and a half. We both were successful. So that worked at that particular point. But just going back and starting up a partnership at the beginning is, is just a recipe for disaster. But you guys, by the way, I have some good news for you. <laughs> um, the other relationship that I have is a partnership that has been one of the most rewarding partnerships of my entire career is me working with Paul Isidorian at Security Weekly. Mm. Um, he is one. Of, so, hey, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm swinging 100% whenever it comes to podcasts. So <laughs> hopefully that's good omens for you too. Yeah. Well, pack your bags up, Chris. We're, we're getting a divorce. <laughs> we're divorcing. This is it. We're done. No, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I do have learnings from my past about doing business with friends. And I told myself that it wouldn't be a good idea to do it again. When Ron and I started the podcast, we didn't even think of it as a business. We just thought about it as a cool open source project that we were doing for the community. And then it turned into a business. So uh, Ronald snuck it by me on that one. But I'd love to talk a little bit about your, your learning from one thing and your learning from failure, but then you go on to do the most in education. Is there a tie to the failures that you've done in your past and why you're looking to keep people from doing the failures that they might do in the beginning? I mean, of course, they're going to fail eventually, but it seems like you want to give folks a head start when it comes to education. Would you say that's true? 
I would say that's absolutely true. You know, I've got this quote. I said, to become truly adept at laughing at yourself, you have to practice on others first. <laughs> and some people are like, I think he's, I think he's got that wrong. <laughs> yeah. So whenever I teach, a lot of times whenever I teach, I will share stories where things went wrong, where I screwed up, where I made the mistake. And I always tell people, it's like, I'm telling you this story because I don't want you to make the same damn mistake that I did. If you, if you listen to a story I tell and you're like, well, John's an idiot. Well, then you missed the point, right? You missed the plot. If you listen to a story I tell and you think that that's funny, but then you make that same mistake, then I gave a personal narrative that was painful for no freaking reason. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that kind of going through that is important in kind of sharing that. Now you talk about like the Sands Institute. The Sands Institute is an absolute exercise and failure every day that you teach. And a lot of people don't understand like the level of quality and commitment the Sands Institute has mm -hmm. when you teach. I can have a hundred people in a room and they brought in psychometricians because Sands instructors, we used to be on a scale of one to 10, would be scoring like 9.7, 9.8. And they're like, that's impossible. There's no effing way that anybody can get in front of a hundred people and have like 97% of the people seriously enjoy being in the room with this person. It's just humans aren't wired. And they came in and they saw all that and they're like, holy crap, that's the way it actually does work. And what people don't understand is if I have a hundred people in a room that love me, but then that 101st person hates me, I'm getting a phone call before I retired. I would get a phone call about that one person that wasn't happy. Mm. And there would be a meeting with like executives and other instructors, like, what are we going to do about this? How is this going to work? What are we going to do to make it up to this person? But that constant focus on like that one thing that's broken basically keeps that quality at a ridiculously high level. It kind of goes back to that failure. You know, every day you're going through your evals, you're going through and you're constantly conniving and figuring out and plotting and scheming. How can I do better? the next day. And you do that. And I did that for 15 years. And these people, some of them have done it longer than I have, but it, that is a little bit of failure, but it all depends on how you take that failure. You can be mad at that person. You can be mad at yourself. You can be mad at the world, or you can make a change in how you're doing things to try to improve the situation. And that's, that's the, you know, when you talk about that failure, I think, you know, being comfortable with it at some level and moving forward and constantly trying to improve your craft is where the best pen testers, the best blue teamers, the best security people in the world all have in common. I'm not surprised by the ratings that you had, like the extremely high ratings where the majority, if not all the people really in, uh, enjoyed the course and also the instructor. It seems like you are a true entertainer. I love watching your SANS instructions. I love watching your YouTube videos. Where does that entertainment factor come from for you? Is there something that you keep in the back of your mind when you're giving a presentation or speaking to a group of people? That's the secret, right? You know, a lot of people are asking, well, are SANS instructors the smartest people in the world? Unless you're talking about like Hal Pomerantz, that dude is scary. Or Steve Sims, oh my God, that guy's bright. By and large, whenever you get to a class and somebody asks a SANS instructor an off-the-wall question and, they, and the instructor nails it to the wall, it's because they've been asked that question five, six times before. There's a quote from Groundhog Day where Bill Murray says something like, maybe God isn't God. Maybe, maybe God is just somebody that's done it a bunch of times before. <laughs> and that's kind of, as a SANS instructor, that's kind of how that works. But, but you can be really smart and not be successful. And Ed Scotus is like a big brother to me. 
and Eric Cole, who's another big brother to me, they had one thing in common whenever they were talking about teaching. And that one thing was joy. Mm. If you're joyous in what you do and you're joyous in what you share, that is infectious. That is contagious. The day that the joy goes out of me doing things like doing webcasts or teaching the pay what you can classes for BHIS or whatever I'm doing is the day I'm done because that means I'm officially not a good instructor. I'm not a good communicator of security concepts anymore. You're talking about this journey as an instructor, and it's so many layers deeper than just your your usual instruction. So I did instruction at the National Security Agency, and it was nowhere near to the level of that of a SANS instructor. When you were going into that journey of being an instructor, tell us a little bit about that journey of going from green all the way up through veteran instructor. What were some of the learnings along the way? This is kind of funny. So the last presentation I gave at SANS was at my last SANS conference. And I had this slide up and it said, you know, SANS Institute, almost always a good decision. <laughs> and that's when Alan Poller, the founder of SANS Institute, came in and saw that slide. <laughs> and the reason why I had that slide up is whenever I first started teaching, I was horrible. Like, I mean, I may have been entertaining, may have been funny or whatever, but my technical chops were nowhere near where I was whenever I walked out the doors. In fact, I should have never have been an instructor at that point. But you talk about that journey, right? And, you know, the students make you better. They always make you better if you're willing to let them. And it requires you to have humility. If you have someone in the room, like I, I was talking about a root kit. I remember I was in Anaheim and I was teaching and I was talking about a particular root kit. And the author of that root kit was in my class. So what, what do you do at that point? You get the hell off the stage <laughs> and you let the author of that rootkit come up and talk about his freaking rootkit. And you constantly are kind of shining lights on others and you're constantly looking for somebody corrects you. you. You accept that correction with humility as much as you possibly can. The other thing is the three most important words you can have is I don't know. And that's powerful. And, and a lot of people think as instructors, we can't say, I don't know. You absolutely can. I mean, eventually you get to the point where you're like, seriously, if I don't know the answer to that question, I guarantee you there's not going to be like a huge percentage of people in the room that know the answer to that question either. So that humility actually coming into it, I think is a huge part of it. It's just a grind, man. It's just like going in and doing it again and again and again, and you just get good. But you know, it, it, there's all this weird crap that happened. Like I remember I had one I had one lady whenever I first started teaching and she was all mad because I was young and she's like she said quote I have underwear older than you and I said well you probably need to shop right <laughs> you know, she said that in the middle of class right I had this one lady that was horrible alcoholic and she had this dog that was a seeing eye dog in training, which totally wasn't a seeing eye dog in training. She's just one of those people that got the jacket for the dog. Nice. And uh, the dog would like run around and I'd be like sitting at a table and it would shove its snout into my crotch. And oh, I don't know, boy. that was just, you know, all these crazy weird things. But the key is you got to roll with it and you got to make it an enjoyable experience no matter what. Couldn't agree more with that. I think there's actually a lot of parallels to giving a training and also being on a podcast. I'm sure you've observed that by being on Security Weekly so much. And I think also part of building your craft is accruing wealth and then dispersing that wealth, whether it's wealth in the monetary, monetary form or the wealth of information. And now you're doing the pay what you can classes. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to go down that route? And what exactly are you teaching when it comes to pay what you can? 
There's three pay-what-you-can classes. So I've got my intro to SOC Analyst, which is core skills like TCP IP and Windows command line, Linux command line. If you're just getting started, you have no idea on like the basic technical underpinnings, that's where you start. And then I have an intro to security class where I take the top 11 things that stop us in a pen test. Like good, strong passwords, two-factor authentication, application allow listing, internet allow listing. And I basically have labs and everything just to set that up. And then the final one is just for fun. It's cyber deception and attribution, where we basically are, are trying to track attackers and make their lives hell with honeypots. Now, what inspired that uh, was actually a couple things. It actually started with Chris Brenton. Chris did a just a free network threat hunting class, and we got 5,000 people to show up. Mm. And when we got 5,000 people to show up, you know, seeing Chris teach this and kind of going through it and... I was teaching a couple of sections and just kind of going through it. I was shocked at how many people were there and then their stories. You had people there from India. You had people there from Japan and Malaysia. You had people there from the Middle East. You had people there from Europe. And we had a whole bunch of people from the United States. And the consistent theme was, I can't believe we got this high of quality training for free. Because Chris is one of the best instructors walking the planet. The guy is amazing. It was, it was shocking to me, like the diversity of the narratives and the stories. Like you would have people that would be in that class and they would say, you know, I am a dishwasher. You know, I graduated from high school, didn't have money to go to college. So I am, I'm, 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 I'm literally washing dishes and I want to get into computer security. And this, this, this allowed me to do that. That's an amazing story. Or I'm a single mom working three jobs and I desperately want to get into computer security. It's like, my God. So you couple that with the fact that you have this industry that is really kind of creepy in the way that it goes about doing certain things. Like I remember with one organization, they were like, well, we need more women in IT security. And it's a whole bunch of guys sitting around, right? And these guys are like, well, we need more women. How are we going to get more women? And I'm like, on the surface of this, this is creepy. Like a bunch of guys sitting right. around being like, where, how are we going to get more women in here? And they start talking about minorities. And the thing that bothered me is they always go for the same damn leather. They're always like, we're going to give out scholarships. Mm -hmm. And I think scholarships are great for the people that get them. I think it, the heart's in the right place, but it doesn't change a thing in the industry. Like if you're an organization, you hand out three or four scholarships to different ethnic groups, to women, to whatever, what does that change? I mean, it changes the lives of those people. And there's no question that there's value. But the status quo stays the same. Mm. So you're confronted with 5,000 people that show up to this free training that Chris Prenton did, and it was life-changing for them. For like Chris and I, it's an afternoon. So we decided that we were going to – we didn't want to just do free. And there's a bunch of reasons to not do completely free. A lot of people value things just as much as they pay for it. So we decided we were going to do pay what you can. If you can pay a full price, show up and pay full price. If you can only pay half, pay half. If you can pay 20 bucks, pay 20 bucks. If you can't pay anything, shoot us an email. Let us know where you're at in life and where you want to go. Like, what do you aspire to do? And I, the reason why I want people to do that is they're coming into this class. I want them to kind of like think of their goals, right? Think of their goals. I don't want them to come in and explain their background about why they're poor or they can't afford it. I don't care. You know, I grew up. I grew up redneck, white trash, quote unquote, and I, I know what it's like to constantly have to justify your existence because of economic uh, uncertainties and things like that. But 
when we did that, it just floored me, like the response, like we have 3000 people sign up for this. And it's just absolutely amazing to give that quality level of training. It's over, over two days for each one of those classes. The whole point is, instead of talking about scholarships and doing these things, let's break the damn gates down completely. And I don't care if you're a Pacific Islander. I don't care if you're Native American. I don't care if you're in Appalachia. I don't care if you're black. I don't care if you're white. The gates are down for everybody. So everybody has a chance to come in and take like intro level security on like SOC analysts. They have the ability to take intro level securities to get these core security skills. We no longer have this gate of really expensive training just to get a job because you have people that are trying to get into the industry. And they say, in order to get this job, you have to have these four certifications. And those four certifications are thousands of dollars. But you can't get those certifications unless you have a job that's willing to pay for those certifications. So it's impossible. It creates this huge gate for people to move from washing dishes, uh, being a truck controller, basically telling semi-trucks where they're going to go and tracking them. Um, it becomes impossible for people that have the skills and have the ability and have the desire to step up because there's this huge gate. Let's destroy the damn gates for entry coming into this industry. Because we always hear people constantly about how, oh, we don't have enough people in computer security. We're being overrun by the Russians, the Chinese, or whoever Yet at the same time, we have these ridiculously high entry standards for entry jobs. And I, I just think that it becomes a great opportunity to destroy those gates completely for people, regardless of where they're actually coming from and giving them a chance. That's incredibly thoughtful that you're doing that. I think the philosophy of pay what you can is unbelievable and it's life-changing for a lot of folks. Ron and I, we constantly have this theme of education. We try to deliberately learn every single day, doing different courses, hiring different mentors and coaches, and just constantly learning. And we had to relearn how to learn. Where do you think education systems go wrong when it comes to teaching the masses, whether you're talking about cybersecurity, whether you're talking about just general education, where do you think education systems go wrong? So if you actually do research on the education system, the modern education system in the United States, it goes all the way back to Carnegie and kind of right around the turn of the last century. And the main goal of education back then was how do we get a population that is trained enough to sit in a factory and work and build widgets, right? Because if you think about working in a factory, you sit there for like eight hours a day. You stamp a widget, but you have to be able to follow instructions. You need to have a way to get instructions to certain people. And if you're going to do this smart, then you need to make sure that those people can earn enough money so that they can actually buy the products that you're actually selling. So if you look at our education system, it's all about memorization of knowledge. It's all about sitting still for eight hours. And it's basically geared towards you know, a, a thought process of what was needed in this country over 100 years ago. And we continue to do that. And the reason why we continue to do that is the system worked for the people that are successful in the system and the people that are successful in the system continue to perpetuate the system that worked for them. And if you look at it, it doesn't work for everybody. I mean, not at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the number of people that are genuinely successful in these particular systems of learning, it is actually a very small minority. I was definitely one of those people. I don't do well sitting in a classroom. I don't do well with here's the multiple choice questions that you need to answer. And here's the different things that you're working on. And uh, somebody reads a problem statement to me and it's like, I, I, I don't know why, 
why exactly does Mr. Parker need silence? And why exactly does this particular person allowed to smoke in their apartment? And, and you know, start dealing with these word problems that are convoluted. It kind of gets caught in my head because I start thinking through these things. So when you look at the system of, you know, we're going to memorize all of this garbage and then you're going to forget it, right? Because a lot of people will memorize mm -hmm. it for the test. And then afterwards, they couldn't remember a damn thing about it. But that doesn't help us with the problems that we're facing. When you look at technology, technology is interconnected. It's highly complex. It requires critical thinking skills. It does not require rote memorization of how to put a thingamajig into a widget. It just doesn't. So you have a lot of people that come out of like education systems where they're coming into security and they can memorize TCP IP, they can memorize the three-way handshake, they can go through all these different things, but boy, you get them in front of a really challenging technical problem and they just fall apart. So I think whenever we're looking at security, I, I always say things like, Coming into security, there's no straight roads to get here, and there sure aren't any when you arrive. And I think a lot of that has to do with many universities, not all, many universities are trying to teach the concepts of computer security in very regimented, old-school ways. And that way of thinking is completely busted for trying to deal with highly complicated problems that we have to face every day in security. John, there's somebody listening right now that might feel like they're not the sharpest knife in the drawer but they know they're never going to give up. They're going to persevere. They're, they are okay with failure and they're going to keep trying until they get it right. What words of encouragement or piece of advice would you give to that person that's embarking on their journey? From one person like that to another, you're not an idiot. Don't allow people to quantify you in a way that makes you think less of yourself. I have taught more people than almost any other person on the planet. I mean, we're talking 10,000 people over the years to the in-person in a classroom. And I've never came across somebody where I'm just like, this person's stupid. I just haven't. And I get into arguments with people like, oh, there's absolutely stupid people. And that's garbage. That's not true. If you look at computer security, my grandmother, before she passed away, she was amazing at knitting. Now, it's easy for us in computer security to look at somebody that's amazing at knitting and be like, what the hell is John talking about knitting? Knitting and cross-stitching and doing all of that embroidery is an incredibly complicated craft that requires a high level of dedication and a tremendous amount of knowledge to be very good at it. Just because she was good at that and she knows nothing about computer security doesn't mean that she's an idiot. We're all really good at some things, and then we don't know a lot about other things. And if you are someone who is focusing, who is working on focusing on failure, and you have that commitment, that goal, and that drive, keep failing. It's absolutely normal. It's going to make you so much stronger in the long run. And more importantly, enjoy the failures. Embrace the failures. Uh, just try your damn best. If you're going to fail at stuff, try your damn best to fail differently, because um, that's the most important thing. Because if you're failing differently, as you said earlier, you're learning, and that's the key thing. John, wise, wise words, and an incredible masterclass on learning until you get it right. For the folks out there that want to keep up to date with you and all the things that you're doing, your courses and stuff with Black Hills, uh, what are the best ways that people can do that? At StrandJS on Twitter. And then you can also just check out our blog and register for updates at blackhillsinfosec.com. 
Great. We will be sure to drop all of those resources in the show notes, including the pay what you can courses. I think everyone can learn something from those, whether you're going from beginner to that more advanced class that you mentioned. Really appreciate the time, John, and we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.